Walking with Jesus, serving with love, and sharing with courage. Welcome to the PCOM Daily Prayer Podcast. Welcome back to the PCOM Daily Prayer Podcast. I'm Pastor Courtney. So excited to have with us this morning, Monday, April 6th, emergency room doctor, and no relation to me despite our shared last name, emergency room doctor Ian Ellis. Ian, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a a privilege. Thanks for being here. I, I would just love to hear from you as we get started where are you? Where's your hospital? And what has it been like for you these past couple of weeks on the front lines? Yeah. So, you know, just by way of introduction. So again, Ian Ellis, I work at Palestine Regional Medical Center. Uh, it's in a small town outside of Tyler, Texas. Uh, so I actually work in a pretty small community. It's more of a rural area. Um, interestingly enough, I actually trained in New York City. I did my residency at Mount Sinai, which is in the news a lot. Uh, those are a lot of my colleagues that you're seeing and hearing and reading about uh, on the front lines in New York City. So uh, I have a lot of personal stake in what happens up there and uh, preparing for what's happening down here. So uh, it's, it's been an interesting few months as the massive understatement of the century. Interesting is not really a word you want around medical (laughs) personnel, right? You want the word quiet or boring or like interesting is usually not good. Especially to an emergency room doctor. You don't want to be interesting at all. In in fact, I say that to my patients all the time. I said, you really want to bore me to death right now. You just want me to walk out of here just with no interest at all in what happens to you. (laughs) Right. I've seen this before. I know exactly what to do. You're going to be better tomorrow. That's what you want to hear from your emergency room doctor. Yeah. So interesting times. Tell me, tell me more. So you did your residency up at Mount Sinai and you're in touch with doctors up there. So you kind of, you have a window into the real crisis center right now in the United States. Yeah. I text them all the time and, you know, I've been texting back and forth with an attending uh, who was actively in quarantine with COVID. I've been texting my fellow residents who are there just working on the front lines and, and talking to them about how it's going, what it's like. Uh, it's interesting talking to them because there's a delay just by geography and necessity and travel patterns between major urban travel centers such as New York and San Francisco and L.A. and New Orleans and rural areas like myself. So we kind of get to see this wave coming in advance, uh, much as our country saw this coming in advance from Italy and Spain and different places in Europe. And it's been such a challenge because none of us quite know when the wave is going to hit us, you know, with this deficit of testing and not being able to really know how fully spread this is within our local, our own local communities. It's kind of like standing on a shore, hearing a wave and knowing that it's coming and knowing that it's a huge wave, but not being able or allowed to open your eyes to see when it's going to hit you. So I think in my situation, that's been where much of the anxiety has come from is we just don't know how many people that are uh, positive, how many are there in our community that are actively spreading it. Am I positive already? And I'm one of those asymptomatic 
spreaders uh, that's, you know, putting my own patients and my own family and my own colleagues in danger. And there's been so much uncertainty over the past month with that, uh, that it's been a real challenge. Uh, You know, there's a, a part of me that perhaps strangely enough is almost jealous of my colleagues in New York, because at least they know where they're at and they know what they're dealing with and they know what to do and how to treat it and how, even though they weren't necessarily well prepared, um, what their needs are in the moment where here in Texas, uh, particularly in rural Texas, we're still kind of flying in the dark, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's easier to fight the enemy you can see. Yeah. So it's been so strange uh, working in an environment where you're being told to presume that all your patients are COVID positive, to presume that yourself is COVID positive, that all of your coworkers are positive, uh, and to exist in an environment without necessarily the proper, uh, you know, personal protective equipment or PPE, and somehow exist in an environment where anything you touch, anyone you interact with, any surface you encounter may or may not be contaminated. And it's incredibly anxiety provoking just because of that unknown, you know, and, you know, at this point we're gowning up completely for every shift. You know, I put on my gown and gloves and mask and face shield at the beginning of every shift and I don't take it off for 12 hours. Um, you know, we don't take it off to eat. We don't take it off to drink because uh, we're too scared <laughs> to touch our own faces and to touch our own masks and to reuse this equipment that's not designed to be reused. And the funny and kind of bizarro world thing for me is I don't even know if there's a point to it yet. We don't know if there's patients in our ER. We don't know if our nurses are infected. We don't know, again, if I'm the one that's potentially infected and just attempting to not spread it to, to other physicians. So um, it's been so challenging just because we, we don't know. We live in that kind of purgatory of hearing that wave, wondering if it's already here uh, because there's this two-week to three-week lag between the onset of infection and really showing severe disease. So, you know, sure, are we seeing tons of fevers and coughs and people with shortness of breath and diarrhea and all these other symptoms. It seems like the list of symptoms that COVID can cause continues to expand on an everyday basis. You know, I read a few days ago, oh, well, pink eye, conjunctivitis, that may be a sign of COVID. So, you know, you see your two to three pediatric patients every few shifts with pink eye and all of a sudden you're scared to get close to them. You're scared to examine them. You're scared to you know, be in their breath zone for fear of contracting a bug that may or may not be among you, (laughs) if that makes any sense. So it makes uh, what our routine everyday patient and clinician interactions fraught with peril, if that makes sense. Um, It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's it's one of the things as a pastor, I never realized how high touch my profession was until I couldn't Mm -hmm. touch anymore. You know, it's not as high touch as a doctor, but you do, you hold someone's hand when you pray, you put a hand on the shoulder, you give hugs. And I imagine that having to think so hard about every interaction like that, even with your protective equipment on is just mentally taxing. I was just going to ask if you would describe for our listeners 
a little bit about how you can transmit it before you're even symptomatic and why you have to be so careful. Because I'm looking at you through the computer right now in Texas and you look perfectly fine. You sound perfectly fine. Why do you have to be so careful? And why do we have to be so careful? I feel fine. I look fine. Tell me about this weird virus and what it does. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's such a challenging bug to deal with. Uh, in a way, in many ways, it's kind of a perfect combination of a high percentage of people that can, for some reason, become infected and show few to no symptoms for a long period of time and actually shed active virus during that period. What does it mean to shed to, virus? I've been hearing that phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good is it like question. a dog? So, like the dog sheds fur, <laughs> you shed virus? Is that similar? You know, it's, it's actually a very apt comparison because if, if a dog brushes against you, it leaves some hairs on your leg, right? And in the same way, someone who's actively shedding virus can shed virus in their, uh, in their cough, in their breath, uh, in their saliva. If they you know, happen to sneeze on a surface, uh, there's some evidence that this is actually uh, carried fairly heavily within the GI tract. So if someone has some diarrhea and they don't wash their hands properly, they can pass it on. Uh, and you know, even in potentially normal stool, you know, I apologize for bringing up that topic, but you know, there's a lot of ways to, to pass this virus on, even in the absence of any objective symptoms, you may feel well, you may look completely well. And particularly in that population that's under 30, uh, it seems like the vast majority of them may not develop any symptoms whatsoever, but be infectious and be able to pass on this disease uh, for weeks and that makes it incredibly challenging because how in the world do you go about screening for disease if you don't have adequate universal testing uh, for a disease that can present with no symptoms? Um, so hence the guidelines to, well, just presume everyone has it. Uh, but in practice, that's incredibly challenging. You know, we depend so much on what the patient looks like, what they sound like, what their symptoms are. You know, the first you know, statement that I make as a, as a doctor in a room as well. So what brings you to the ER today? What's wrong? And if they say, well, my toe hurts and I'm here for toe pain or I'm here for shoulder pain, the idea of an infectious disease doesn't even cross your mind or enter into the paradigm. But now we have to treat every toe pain and every shoulder dislocation and every cough and sneeze and every little bit of stomach pain as if they may have a potentially fatal disease that they could pass to me, they can pass to my colleagues, they can pass to the clerk who checked them in. Um, and like I said, uh, up to 50% we're finding now of people that become infected with this virus don't have any symptoms at all, which just makes it so difficult. And we still don't understand what exactly it is about a 35-year-old that shows no symptoms and a 35-year-old that ends up in the ICU on a ventilator. Um, there's a lot of unknowns there and there's a lot of active study. Uh, but it's a terrifying thing because it's, it feels like you're playing roulette. You know, It's like if it lands on 35 black, I'm good. I have no symptoms. I feel great. I didn't suffer at all. Uh, if it lands on 24 red, I'm dead. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to deal with that. It's not a, it's, it's a disease that, um, behaves in very unusual ways. 
That's a lot to carry with you on a, and, and not just, not just your patients, but the loved one of the patient, right? The patient who's in there for shoulder pain may have a spouse or a parent or a child with them that now can cause risk. Or are you guys keeping all the family members now out of the ER? Is it just patients that you're treating? Yeah. So just recently, uh, this past week, we went to a zero visitors policy for the emergency department. The only people that are excluded from that are minors uh, that need a single parent to be there. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably what we physicians are most worried about is not necessarily care for our patients because caring for these patients is not particularly difficult, um, because there aren't very many good treatments. Yeah, you know, it's a viral illness. That. If someone yeah. comes in with a severe case, what is the treatment? What do you, what do you look for and what do you do? Yeah. So the treatments for these patients, uh, if they come in with a mild to moderate case, which let's just use a, a, a you know, a, a, a typical example, uh, they come in with some mild cough, a little bit of fever, some mild shortness of breath, their oxygen level is okay. Uh, I may or may not even be able to test them uh, due to test availability. Uh, but if I were to test them and they would be positive, my instructions to them would be very simple. Go home, rest, drink plenty of fluids, take Tylenol for fever. Uh, there's some debate uh, whether people should be taking ibuprofen. So uh, I've been counseling people to, if they can get by with just Tylenol, to use that. Uh, but to go home and rest, plenty of hot tea and you know chicken soup and whatever else you would do for a, a typical viral infection. Um, I counsel them that if you start to feel much worse to where you feel very short of breath, uh, you can't walk across the room without having to stop because you're so short of breath. Or if you happen to have a, uh, a home pulse oximeter, that's a little thing that clips on your finger that tells you your oxygen saturation. If your oxygen gets below 91 to 92, uh, then you should probably come back to the hospital. But beyond that, there's no specific treatment at all. Uh, for a severe case where they need supplemental oxygen, um, you know, we would consider admitting them to the hospital. Uh, but from there, even in significantly worsening cases, treatment is primarily supportive. You know, if you can't breathe, we'll put you on a ventilator and breathe for you. If you get dehydrated, we'll give you fluids. If you're having pain and fever, we'll give you Tylenol. Um, any treatment beyond that at this point is purely experimental. And we don't know the efficacy. We don't know if they work. So circling back around, to the point, uh, treatment of these patients is not necessarily particularly difficult from a medical perspective. The stress and anxiety comes much more from, again, that fear of, am I going to get this and pass it on to someone? Am I sick and don't know it, and I'm going to pass this on to this patient that's going home to be with their grandparent because they're their sole caregiver? Um, you know, our family has been self-isolating in our home for I don't know, three weeks, almost a month, uh, when we saw this coming. But the vast majority of people are not doing that to such a degree where they're still going out in the public, they're still going out to the grocery store, they're still going out to you know, perform essential tasks, or some people have essential jobs that go to work. Um, and if I infect one of those patients because I'm not careful or because I wasn't aware that I you know, had a, a little bit of virus on my gown that I'm not allowed to change between patients because we don't have enough, uh, that that patient might work at Sanderson Farms 
uh, at a chicken processing plant and take down a whole production line of people that are needed to keep our country running. You know, so you feel the weight of that on your shoulders with every pink eye that comes in, <laughs> which is extremely challenging uh, from a psychological perspective. And, you know, the way I've dealt with that is to, as you alluded to before, minimize patient contact. I don't touch my patients anymore. I stand at a distance to do my interview uh, unless I absolutely have to. I don't do a detailed physical exam where I'm getting close to someone's face or getting in their breath space. And that's a radical departure from how I normally practice medicine. So... Does that answer that question? That's a, a long way. It does, answer. yeah. It feels like a really, really steep learning curve, right? You're learning about this new virus, but you're also learning an entirely new way to do patient care, right? How yeah. do you assess things from across the room that you're used to putting a hand on the chest or a stethoscope or a it's a it's a whole new it's a whole new world. Sounds exhausting. Yeah, yeah I leave my stethoscope in my car. Uh, I don't even listen to patients' breath sounds anymore, <laughs> which you know. It's like, how can you do that? How can you examine a patient? But it's, it's just too risky. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's been a big adjustment to learn how to, to work in that paradigm. Yeah. So for those of us not in the medical field, what are some simple things that we can do to help, to make your job easier, but to make every, doctor, every doctor's job easier? I saw something you posted on Facebook a couple days ago about face masks, which now our mm-hmm. CDC is recommending if you can like, even have a homemade one. Don't take the medical ones away from the medical workers. You guys need those specialized ones, but should we right. wear those? Is that, should I go out looking like a bank robber? Is that <laughs> a good plan? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, Well, first of all, I shouldn't go out, right? I should not go out. But if I do have to go out because there's no more food in the house, right? Right, Like only essential... So the lay the lay person has an advantage in that you guys can wear whatever masks you like. The important thing for masks for the lay public is twofold. Number one, for yourself. Again, uh, I what I tell everyone right now is to presume that you are infected with COVID-19. That's the easiest way for you to behave safely and responsibly in our current environment. Uh, it's a lot easier if you're asymptomatic just to presume, oh, well, I don't have it and everyone else does, so I'll behave according to that paradigm. But it actually makes a lot more sense for you to presume that you're the one that's infected and you don't want to infect other people that are vulnerable. That will affect your traffic patterns a lot more. You know, if you're presuming, oh, you know what? I might be infected by this virus. I might be in that 50% that's asymptomatic. Would you want to be not wearing a mask at a grocery store? You know, when you talk, if you cough, if you sneeze, that, wow, I've just contaminated an entire aisle of produce. Um, that's the way people should think about this, is to try to avoid contaminating your environment uh, under the presumption that you might be infected. Um, so wearing a mask is extremely helpful. In fact, if someone goes to my Facebook, I post a, a little very short video clip of someone sneezing without a mask, which is frankly a horrific thing to it's witness. So gross. With a it's a gross video, I mean, but it's helpful. Some people, uh, there's some evidence that a sneeze uh, droplets can travel up to 25 feet away from you, which is just crazy. Uh, and then you put a mask on that same person, they reproduce that sneeze. And essentially, it catches every single one of those droplets. So 
a mask is extremely helpful to prevent contaminating an environment. Uh, the other thing that it does for you is, it, and this is what it does for me in the ER as well, is it reminds you not to touch your own nose and mouth. Um, you know, taking a uh, virus that's in the environment that gets onto your hands and you self-transferring it to your own face, mouth, and eyes is probably the primary way this is transmitted. And so just a physical barrier between you, your mouth, your nose, and, and your own hands is huge to remind you, oh, I need to wash my hands. I just left the grocery store. Let me wash up before I take this mask off and, and interact with my own uh, eyes and nose and mouth. Um, now, does it protect you from other people? Absolutely. So if someone sneezes in your face, does it catch some of those droplets? Absolutely. Would I prefer that you were wearing goggles or glasses? You know, that might be safer. And that's a big reason why I wear a face shield uh, in the ER because I have to be in close proximity to people. But the solution to that is just to stay, again, that six to eight feet away so that you have a little bit of space between you and other people's bodily fluids, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Um, so uh, should you wear a mask? It's really smart. You know, wearing a mask, even a cloth mask that you can make yourself or whichever fabric you prefer uh, is a great idea. Um, one thing that other countries have done well is remove the stigma that comes with wearing a mask. If everyone wears a mask, you're not the odd one out. You don't feel strange. You don't feel like everyone's staring at you. You know, wondering if you're the sick one, you know, and for that reason, I was very grateful that we have some top down guidance now from the CDC and from the government that they're making that suggestion because it removes a little bit of the stigma from doing it. Um, if every single person wore a mask when they went out and every single person washed their hands before and after they entered a communal area, the transmission of this virus would drop precipitously. Mm. So... Um, now, are homemade masks fine? Absolutely. Um, preferably, they should have a few layers. Uh, cotton is perfectly acceptable, an old T-shirt or a uh, cotton handkerchief uh, doubled over a few times. There's uh, many designs you can look at online, and there's a lot of people putting their skills to work making masks for friends and neighbors and churches. So if you can get a, ha a hold of one, great. Wear it. Uh, if you take it off, wash your hands after you take it off, before you touch your face. And I would recommend you wash that mask at least a, you know, once a day or have a rotation that you can use every few days to let whatever contaminants might be on their diet. That's, all, that's really helpful. I've been out walking in our neighborhood and three days ago, no one was wearing one. Two days ago, a couple people were wearing them. And today, almost everyone. And I don't see that many people on my walk, but of the six or seven people I've seen, it's, it's becoming more acceptable. And I'm, I'm glad yeah. for that. Yeah. As far as wearing gloves, um, I actually don't think that wearing gloves for the lay public is very helpful hmm. because when I wear gloves in the hospital, uh, I put them on to enter a contaminated area and I do not interact with my own personal belongings or my own body until I remove those gloves. And what a lot of people do if they go to the grocery store is they put on gloves, they interact with their groceries, they pick up their keys, they open their purse, they pay uh, for the groceries, the credit card, and they put that back in their purse. And then they walk out and take off the gloves and feel like they did something. And the fact is what they did is contaminate 
<laughs> most of their belongings prior to removing that barrier. So I don't think that does a lot of good. Um, what I recommend is if you go to the grocery store, wash your hands on the way in. Again, under the paradigm that you're the one that's infected. I don't want to spread my own potential disease to my environment. Only touch things once and only touch the things that you have to touch and don't interact with your own belongings until you're able to wash your hands again. So maybe you'll pull out that credit card and have it in an accessible place before you get in there. So you don't have to dig around in your purse. Uh, Maybe you'll, you know, put your keys in your purse uh, and not carry them around to where you're not interacting with them as you shop. Um, The best way is to wash your hands, do your job, wash your hands again, and then interact with your own things and your own body and possessions. So, uh, gloves probably aren't particularly helpful. Hand washing is much more effective than gloves in a public space. So, you know, people wearing masks and gloves, I think, might be a little excessive, uh, just not necessary. Uh, but certainly, a mask is a great idea. The thing with gloves, too, my my husband and I worked for a brief time as chaplains in an ICU, and we had mm-hmm. to go through the whole personal protective equipment training. And it took us like. 10 different times to figure out how to take the gloves off without contaminating <laughs> our hands. Like it's not yeah. intuitive. And I'm like, I'm going to get this wrong. So it is often just easier to just don't touch your face. Don't touch your face until you've washed your hands. And yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, and actually there have been many studies that have shown that the most likely time for a health healthcare provider to contaminate themselves and to get an infection is when they're taking off their personal protective equipment. Um, not doing it in the precise order just making a small mistake, touching something you shouldn't have touched, and then again, uh, touching your own face, nose, or mouth. So uh, I, I agree with your assessment there. It's just leave that to the experts and wash your hands. Well, I imagine taking off that gear after 12 hours of not eating and drinking, there's a particular level of fatigue that's not normal. You know, it's, that's, that's the time you probably need prayers the most. Well, I have to say, uh, I really do feel for my colleagues in New York city right now, because, you know, I wear that equipment all day, but I'm not yet in an environment that super high volume, super high stress where I'm actively doing high risk procedures on patients that I know are COVID positive with a high viral load and, and doing living in that environment where, you know, you're surrounded by and completely coated with virus, uh, being hungry, being dehydrated, uh, having to put yourself at risk constantly. And, you know, doing that at a time when you're already exhausted, uh, is, is so difficult. (laughs) And, you know, I just, I just feel for them so much. And there's, and it's, you know, we're not doing it well enough. You know, there are residents dying. There are physicians dying. There are nurses and techs and support people dying from contracting this disease on the job. And it's happening all over the world. It's happening in the United States of America. It's happening in New York right now. Um, It hasn't gotten a lot of press yet, but two young residents in their 30s uh, have passed away just in the past 48 hours uh, from this disease, some of them with wives and children. And, you know, my hat goes off to them. Uh, I, I suppose my turn is coming. Whenever that wave gets here, uh, it may already be here, as we've mentioned. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, 
my heart goes out to to the people that are really in the thick of it right now. What is it like as as a doctor and a medical professional, but also as a Christian? I know you grew up as the son of missionaries in Brazil. Yep. What is it like? Mm-hmm. You're not a soldier, but in this war, you are, and you are on the front lines of this. What is it like to go into that ER as a Christian, as a doctor? What goes through your mind? I, you know, do you ever have a moment of, I didn't really sign up for this. You know, I, I, I'm here because I want to heal people. And now all of a sudden, you know, I know as a doctor, you are always at risk, especially the emergency room is the front line of whatever walks in that door. You don't know what it's going to be and you might be at risk, but this is a, there's almost a, feels like a pre-trauma for a lot of medical professionals seeing this wave coming. What gets you up in the morning? What gets you going back? And where is God in the <laughs> pandemic? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Those are all great questions. Um, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I see a lot of memes out there with doctors, you know, tearing their shirts open and there's a Superman logo underneath. And, you know, a lot of this, these very sweet homages to medical professionals uh, and kind of portraying us as heroes or, or people that are, you know, or soldiers, you know, I, I hear that comparison a lot. Um, the fact is, uh, we are human beings. We're human beings with families and we're human beings that are confronting something that none of us has confronted. Uh, no one that is alive today, uh, and functioning in the workforce has gone against something quite like this. So it's very difficult. It's very stressful. There's a lot uh, that we're learning very quickly about this disease and about what we need to do to protect ourselves, to protect our families, to protect our coworkers. Um, but you know, you ask, well, how do you, how do you get up in the morning and go do your job? Well, it, it is, it is your job. We do have a duty, uh, to care for patients. Um, I will say that none of us signed up for, doing that unprotected. Hmm. Uh, none of us signed up going, you know what, I'm going to care for an infectious disease that may or may not kill me that I could spread to my family without having protective equipment on. You know, that's not even something that in the United States of America in a first world country with the most advanced medical system on the planet that I think any of us have even considered, you know, that's something that happens really far away in really extreme environments like in sub-Saharan Africa during an Ebola outbreak. That's not something any of us have considered doing in New York City or in Palestine, Texas. And due to what has happened across the world in a pandemic, uh, we are having to do those things and to go into battle unprepared, unprotected, without the weapons that we thought we would have. And it's not an easy decision. You know, I know physicians that care for elderly patients or, or excuse me, care for elderly parents or have people that they have to be in contact with that have made that decision. You know what? I have to sit this one out. You know, I can't be that risk to my loved ones. And is that, is that weakness? Is that someone in dereliction of duty? Absolutely not. You know, they're entitled to that. Of course they are. You know, we don't, we're not under marching orders from a general 
to go into battle with no uniform and no protection and no ammunition. Um, and that makes it even more noble for the doctors that are choosing to go to the hospital because they don't have to. They don't have to show up. Uh, they're not under any legal obligation uh, or even necessarily a moral obligation to put the health and livelihood of a patient they don't know over that of their own family. You know, that's not a choice we've had to make before. I don't go to work thinking, well, you know, I love my patients more than my wife, than my three kids. Uh, so I'm going to choose to go to work and take care of them instead. You know, in this environment, that's a calculus I have to make every time I go to work. And, you know, making that decision, okay, am I adequately protecting myself? Am I in an environment where I'm safe? If I'm not safe, what does that mean? Do I move out? Do they move out? Do I live in a hotel for the next one month, two months, four months, six months? How long is this going to go on? We don't know. Uh, and I, there are a lot of doctors that are making that decision. And I have several friends and close coworkers and residents that have had their families move out and they're going to work by themselves. They're coming home to an empty house, uh, being separated from their families in the service of fighting this disease. And it's just a crazy thing. It's something we, none of us have dealt with before. Uh, so we're all, you know, doing the best we can to be completely honest. It is terrifying to most of us. Uh, you know, that old adage, adage, did I say that right? Adage, of, uh, yeah. you know, of, uh, you know, bravery is not, not being scared yeah. or being afraid. It's being afraid yet still pushing forward and doing the job. And I think that's where all of us are. There aren't very many of us that aren't extremely anxious and scared about going to work and taking care of these patients. Um, but if we don't, no one will. So it's our duty and it's our duty to do it as best we can, uh, to protect ourselves as best we can. And, uh, you know, in, in many cases across the country, taking our own protection into our own hands, you know, procuring our own personal protective equipment, getting our own masks secondhand, getting our own gowns secondhand, bringing in our own cleaning supplies from our own homes to clean our work environments, uh, because all of those things are in short supply. Uh, so we're all doing our best in our own ways. Well, thank you for showing up. I mean, it's a, it is such, we're all in such a different place than we thought we would be around Christmas time. You know, everyone had these plans for the year and now all of a sudden everything is different. Everything has changed. And, you know, we as, as pastors, my husband and I and our senior pastor, Jackson, get a lot of questions on, you know, how is this going to end? And we're like, we're pastors, not prophets. Um, <laughs> and, and where is God in the midst of this? And I wonder for you and for your family, for Sonia, you guys have three little kids. Where is God for you in the midst of this? How has your yeah. faith helped you or maybe troubled you in the midst of this? Well, I think throughout history and this, uh, this current trouble 
being no exception to that. Uh, if you allow it, these kind of things draw you closer to God. And I know that's been true for me and it's been true for our family. Um, we, particularly in America, are so comfortable. You know, this is all so new. Like, how many of us have had the experience in our lifetime of going to the grocery store and not being able to get whatever we want? Uh, or get online and order whatever we want. And, you know, in recent times, have it at your doorstep within 24 hours, within a few hours, you know. And all of a sudden, we're finding how fragile our world and our country and our environment is. And how, I mean, who would ever have thought that a little bitty virus in some whatever it was, bat or pangolin or something else, at some little market somewhere in China could take down the entire world within literally a few months and grind the entire world to a halt to disrupt all of our social structures, to disrupt even in some cases, again, food availability, you know, deliveries of essentials, uh, what we would have considered completely essential and abundant protective equipment for providers, uh, that's all gone away. And so you have to look at that and realize, oh, maybe I'm not as secure as I thought. Maybe my world is a little more fragile than I thought and realize that may, just maybe we need to depend on something a little greater than that and a little greater than ourselves. And so for us, it's a real reminder that God is sovereign. God is in control. We are living according to his plan, not the other way around. And so my prayer on a nightly basis is really one of reflection of God's sovereignty and that he knows what's going on, even if we're not in control. Um, and so, of course, we pray for his mercy. We pray for, you know, his blessings on us, his blessings on the world, uh, who he loves. Um, but mostly my prayer is that his will be done, that whatever his plan is for this, to come out of this, uh, that it be done and done well. And for us to learn from the experience and come out better as a human race. Um and I think there's already so much evidence of that happening. You know, uh, how amazing, even though it's such a challenging time, how amazing is it that we're spending so much time with our loved ones? How amazing it, is it that we're being forced to step off the treadmill of modern life and the race from this to that to the next thing and just be and have to actually think and actually feel and actually ponder those big questions that so much of the time we don't even have the opportunity to ponder in our modern lives. Uh, you know, in our family, we've had more sit down dinners with our kids in the past month than in a really long time, you know, and we're growing closer together We're I'm learning to be a better father. I'm, having the opportunity to become a better husband. Um, 
And I think that's at least the potential for that is there for most people around, even though it's stressful, even though we have challenges financially and, and with our jobs and uncertainties, uh, it's an amazing opportunity to really walk the walk as Christians and trust in God for our needs. Hmm. So, you know, God's everywhere in this. He really is, you know, he's there in the ER, he's there in our homes, he's there across the country if we will just be open to it. And it's amazing that a lot of us have the space and opportunity to be open to hearing what he has to say. A lot of those distractions have been stripped away without mm-hmm. our, without our consent and without our, yeah. without our say so. That's, that's such a good, that's such a good word. It's such a good way to frame it. Well, we're going to end in a minute with Psalm 91, Ian, that I think mm-hmm. you're going to read for us. But before then, how can we specifically be praying for you and your family and be praying for our other emergency room doctors and nurses and medical staff in the midst of this? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, I think there are some spiritual asks and there are physical needs as well. Um, on a spiritual and emotional level, uh, just pray for our own emotional health, pray for strength as we confront extremely challenging environments and decisions and have to see and bear witness to a lot of trauma and tragedy, uh, even beyond a scale that any of us have trained for or experienced, uh, just to be able to put that aside uh, at the end of a shift and to come in the next day and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. Uh, so just pray for stamina for us and pray for our own emotional health, uh, pray for our empathy that we don't lose that, uh, in the face of this onslaught that we still view our patients as people and not just the next casualty, uh, in this battle or a number on the chart. Um, I think those things are, really in danger in environments like this is where you can become very jaded and very calloused and very seared. If that makes sense to where you stop viewing each patient as a person with a family, uh, with loved ones that deserves the best care you can give. Um, as far as physical needs, um, the biggest thing is we just need protective equipment. Um, there's just been this global disruption of supply chains that have made these items that we've taken for granted for so long, uh, simply not be available. And so just pray that those supply chains would be reinforced and would be able to provide us that with the things that we need, um, pray that people that have them in their garages and in their businesses and basements uh, and places where they've been stockpiled that they would remember that they're there uh, and to give them the foresight and forethought to donate them uh, to either an individual provider or to a hospital um, that is extremely helpful uh, particularly because we're reusing those masks you know one provider may use uh, one mask that you had in your garage for months uh, and if they didn't have that they would be putting themselves and their patients at risk. So um, praying for supplies and praying for people to uh, be able to provide those things would be amazing. 
Well, we will. That's what we're, that's your, that's your job today, Pecan Podcast listeners, that we would lift up those things for Ian, but also for our, our doctors here in Mission Viejo and in Orange County. Everyone's in the same, in the same boat needing those prayers. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time. And I, I know you're working a lot more shifts than normal. So these hours yeah. are really precious. Thank you. And I would love it if you would read Psalm 91 for us. Psalm 91 has been what we've been encouraging our church to memorize over the Lenten season. And Mm -hmm. our seven-year-old is really proud. He's up to verse 12. Uh, And he's farther than I am. (laughs) You can't compete with the brain of a seven-year-old, man. Oh, I know. He's further than I am, too. So I'm going to be reading this from my my electronic device here. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Okay. Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent where he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just one last, one last thing to say, um, just from a Christian perspective. Um, this virus is so scary because we don't have good treatments. Like I said, it's a, it's a roulette. Are you going to be that person that it doesn't even touch? Are you going to be that person that no matter what we do, um, your days are numbered? Um, what an amazing opportunity to remember God's truth, which is is that this life is not the end. Um, The fact is our hope cannot be in medicine, in supplies, in our hospitals, um, in the hands of physicians, of men. Uh, That may not save you, and it may not save me, Um, but God will save us in this life and the next. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to remember that because otherwise uh, it's such an opportunity for fear and for anxiety and for paralysis. And, you know, if it's my time, if it's your time, if it's our family's time, of course, of course there's time for grief and time for pain. Um, But thank God that we know that death is not the end. Yeah. And if there's ever a time to remember that and to know that, to hold on to that with every single fiber of our strength, that this is the time. So mm. I just wanted to say that because guess what? I'm not big enough to 
save you from this. Um, you know, I'll do my best, but, uh, God is big enough and he's always been big enough and this is in his plan and we can rest in that every day. Hmm. That is, that'll preach. Let us, let us know when you want to come and we'll, we'll give up the pulpit for you any Sunday, Ian. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's real. It's, that's never been more real for me than yeah. right now. Daryl and I, early on when all this started breaking, had a moment where we were sitting on the couch and praying and just looked at each other and we said, we have to know that Jesus is who he says he is. And if that's yeah. true, then this will be okay. And, you know, like pastors get to that moment too. And if mm-hmm. Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, then we will get to the other side of this one way or another. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, now you got me crying, Ian. <laughs> me too, me too. I'm with you. Sonia's here too. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. We will be praying for you and for your ministry. And um, thank you for that reminder that our lives at the end of the day are not in the hands of doctors, even really good doctors like yeah. you, Ian. Our hands, uh, our lives are in the hands of the Lord and there is no safer place to be. Absolutely. And stay home. And stay home. Yes. <laughs> right. That's not stay to say home. your life is in They'll the hands of God. Home. So go to Disneyland. Uh, it's closed anyway. Yeah. Stay home. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. <laughs> Enjoy your time off. Uh, help is coming. And yeah. this too shall pass. This too so. shall pass. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Ian, for being with us. Tune in tomorrow for another episode of the PCOM Daily Prayer Podcast. And until then, stay safe, be well, and God bless. Mm-hmm.